Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about it is not who you know. This is going to be a bit of a substance versus style, inappropriate conversations, as I set myself to the task of trying to remember, with some degree of ease, which I I certainly failed, any of the famous people that I've had the opportunity to meet over the years. It always sneaks up on me when I remember these stories because they don't dwell in the front of my mind. And part of it is because of the title of this particular episode, It's Not Who You Know. I don't put that much stock into it. So I want to wind through a couple of stories, very simple ones, actually, which kind of deal with, uh, I think the overarching theme I would say is that I'm not the kind of person who collects autographs, and I'm not the kind of person who spends a lot of time dwelling on brush encounters with celebrity. It's just not who I am. Having said that, it's occurred a few times, and I thought about it for this particular point in, in the calendar, for this April time period, in conjunction with somebody that I've struggled with whether to name a different drummer or not. Going all the way back to the very beginning, uh, putting pen to paper on who the first different drummers for uh, the Inappropriate Conversations podcast might be, it occurred to me that one of the ones that I might come up with early on would be Garth Brooks. And Garth Brooks' debut CD came out 26 years ago uh, on the day I'm recording. As I'm recording this, it's been a 26-year-long music career with a few willful and intentional interruptions. But we'll get to Garth Brooks in just a minute. I think I want to start, though, by talking about this concept of autograph in general, because this is also the one-year anniversary of a trip that my wife and I took to the United Kingdom a year ago. It's been documented to one degree or another on Inappropriate Conversations 142, an episode called Minding the Gap, a reference to the British rail system. During that trip, we met a lot of people, 20-plus people, and many of those people, uh, more than half of them, I had either uh, listened to on previous shows, podcasts in particular, or heard about on those shows, and really desperately wanted to meet. But at no point in those sort of meetings did it feel like the right thing to do was to pull out a pen and a piece of paper, slide it across the, the table, and ask somebody to sign something. See, the problem with the concept of signing autographs is that it makes the encounter more about style than substance. It flips it on its head, at least this is my mentality, flips it on its head and makes it important to somehow document that something happened. To me, it always feels like what happened becomes less important than the documentation of what happened. And to one degree or another, I feel the same way about pictures, although I understand pictures. Pictures can trigger a memory, can help a memory survive. So that doesn't seem as pointless to me. You see, the problem is I know that autographs in and of themselves are a bit of a business. And I think I would tire quickly, if I were a celebrity, of encountering people who are looking to cash in on that chance meeting, or even if it was an intentional meeting. So uh, to me, I'm put off a little bit by the notion of paying for the opportunity to get an autograph. And I'm also, I think if I were a celebrity, would be put off by the idea of autographs altogether. Substance, to me, would be more about having a conversation, 
a conversation probably more meaningful than, hey, I love your work. But if I can't do any better than, hey, I love your work, that's probably better than sort of the, uh, let's get a picture taken so I can show all of my friends. In some ways, making this encounter all about me instead of all about, well, whatever it should be about, whenever two people encounter, whether one of them happens to be famous or not. Of course, this is not to suggest that I don't have autographs laying around the house somewhere. I'm sure I do. I can think of one right off the top of my head. But the funny thing is, I think if I were to encounter any others, any ones that were less recent, it might surprise me. So I'm going to refer to just a little bit of uh, kind of general storytelling, things that have happened to me over the years where I've encountered people who, you know, you might imagine somebody would want an autograph or a photograph of that occasion. And I'll tell it from my perspective in the sense of what did I get from the encounter, whether it was a chance encounter or otherwise. So let me begin with maybe the most recent. My wife and I went to a U.S. men's national soccer game a couple of years ago, a friendly encounter. So two uh, national teams getting together for the purpose of almost a scrimmage is kind of how you'd call that. As it played out, we didn't realize that we were actually staying at the same hotel that the U.S. men's national team was staying at. And on our way to the practice day, so the day before the game, uh, fans can get in and watch the team's practice. And then the day of the game, of course, you have to have tickets. We, We happen to get some very good tickets for that particular game. And I found myself in the elevator with the the head coach of the team, Jurgen Klinsmann, and one of the players, Jermaine Jones. I simply said, hey, have a good game, coach, and left it at that. No more conversation. In fact, I may not have even said that. Those may have been the words that were on my head, but I didn't articulate them. Again, not important enough for me to remember, but I actually have you know, spent, what, five, six floors of descent in an elevator with you know, these people that if you were at all a U.S. soccer fan, you'd recognize. No autograph needed, no autograph sought, and I'm not sure an autograph would have been appropriate, to be honest, with uh, the focus for me as a fan of the team being them playing well, not me having my moment in the sun with either one of them. Contrast that with the last time I can remember willfully seeking an autograph. Twice my entire family has gone to Chris Rice concerts. Chris Rice is one of a couple of different drummers I'll mention, in this show, uh, encounters where I've actually had face-to-face meetings with different drummers. We went to see, both of these concerts were at a church. An interesting thing that happens in contemporary Christian music, in that you don't necessarily have to have what you might consider to be a concert hall type venue. Uh, Because of the nature of their music and the nature of their witness, these uh, players are more than welcome to rent out, I'm assuming there's a rental involved, a church for the venue for their shows. The first one we saw was in what you might call a fellowship hall, and the second one was actually in a very large sanctuary. But after the first concert, we had such a good time, and everyone was in such a good mood, that we did decide to go ahead and wait in line and meet Chris Rice. From my perspective, it was just that, waiting in line and seeing him in person, face-to-face across the table and meeting him. But for some of the members of my family, the kids in particular, the autograph seemed to make sense. So we bought a music book and had him autograph the music book. I don't know where that music book is today. Now, that's not unusual. I play neither piano nor guitar, so there's no reason for me to actually have a music book handy for my personal reference. For all I know, my daughter might have it. But that's the most recent autograph I've taken. The only other time I can remember asking for an autograph and and getting it was also at the end of a concert. 
going all the way back to when I was working in record stores. So this would have been probably the late 1990s. Holly Cole, a different drummer, and a favorite of the entire family, like Chris Rice, was in concert, and there was a thought when I'd heard from the record label that not only was she coming to the town that I lived in, but that I could get tickets to go see her, that the tickets would be covered. It wasn't a backstage pass type situation, but I found out later that part of the reason for that was that there was no real backstage involved here. It was uh, performing in a bar. So I thought perhaps she'd be performing in one of the concert recital concert hall venues for the local university, in which case the show might start around 7 and the entire family could attend. And instead it was more like she'll be on stage between 9 and 10 at a, at a bar and no one under 21 is allowed. This was a little bit disappointing to uh, the rest of the family. And the way we decided to manage it was that they sent me on my own to the show and I took with me a couple of promotional posters. Those, these were posters for her latest album, the album that she was touring to support. And after the show, I did get to meet her, and kind of there, again, at the invitation of the record label. And I showed her the two posters that I brought with me and asked her if she wouldn't mind signing them for the kids, because the kids were disappointed at not having been able to come, because they were, you know, not, not just underage, but perhaps on the very low end of the age range for her fan base. Uh, perhaps a little bit unusual that kids who weren't yet 10 or 11 years old were fans of Holly Cole. And so she autographed one to my daughter, saying, kind of hope, hope I get to see you next time I'm in town. And uh, the one she autographed to my son, something about his name uh, being a cool name. So very uh, gracious, uh, very easy to talk to. But I always felt a little bit awkward about having a conversation with somebody around this thought of taking a, a piece of memorabilia back to the family. It wasn't exactly what I would have wanted to have happen. To me, the best example I can think of, and, and the one that contrasts with these two post-concert autograph line encounters would have been Al Stewart. This would be going back to the middle of the 1980s. Stewart would have been touring to support the Russians and Americans album. Not an album that I would necessarily expect a lot of people to know uh, right off the top. It didn't have any of the big hits. So this is you know a decade or more after Year of the Cat and Time Passages and Song on the Radio, that era of Al Stewart. And really, I think one of the signs that he was really beginning to um, to move more directly into the uh, poet-historian musician that he's sort of become. And for whatever reason, that, that show was interesting to me. I'd encountered Al Stewart, frankly, as a folk musician. I had, uh, I'd heard his music before on the radio and was indifferent to that adult contemporary pop style of music. So songs like Year of the Cat and Time Passages weren't really my cup of tea in that period of time in the mid to late 70s. But at the, uh, in the early 80s, when I discovered his earliest work, his Dylan-esque sort of folk period for three, four, maybe five albums at the most, really loved that and was kind of hoping, seeing him in concert in the middle of the in Midwestern part of the country, that I would get to hear maybe more of his catalog than just hears songs from the latest album and the hits that everybody knows. I feel safe describing the concert as more of what you'd expect. Songs from the latest album and the hits everybody knows. But Alster was a very, uh, he was a very congenial guy and invited, you know, anybody who'd hung around after the show to greet him, invited us back to the party after the show at a restaurant nearby with his band. So my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, and I went 
to that place and ended up getting to spend a little bit more time, you know, actually having casual conversation, eating nachos, uh, having a beer or whatever the equivalent of a beer would have been at that time, and talking about music with Al Stewart. That was more the substance that I would have enjoyed. And of course, if I said, hey, of all the people that I've met in person from the music world, uh, Al Stewart's one of my favorite stories, that you know, I might to some people feel a little bit sad. Doesn't carry the celebrity of, of even a Britney Spears, and certainly not the current celebrity of somebody like a Katy Perry. And doesn't necessarily have that, that hardcore you know, rock credentials. Uh, it's not like I was spending time with you know the members of Led Zeppelin or surviving members of the Beatles. Closest I ever got to that was you know, just a handshake and a hello to Julian Lennon, who was going to the, uh, the corporate offices of numerous American record companies, uh, distribution companies, the music stores, uh, trying to kickstart his own solo career, which had had more than one fit and start along the way. The only other thing I can cite from my experience inside the record company, the day that Bare Naked Ladies came to our corporate office when I was working there at the time to promote what was then the impending release of their stunt album. It was an interesting point in time for the Canadian band. They had um, delivered huge success with their their crossover hit, uh, If I Had a Million Dollars, on their debut album, Gordon. But the album or two that they released after that had found a little bit of frustration getting traction because fans of that first album were somewhat resistant to anything they'd done since. Now, as it would play out, Stunt turned into a major hit for the group and was a tremendous success and found them a new audience, won back some of that original Gordon-era audience, and probably marked a line where some of the original audience who were enthusiastic about them as an independent band uh, just couldn't get behind the international fame, the success, the major label version of the band, and were lost for good. I was in the middle of all this. And what I mean by in the middle was I was neither a huge fan of the first album. It took me a while to grow on to the, the new album that they released. I do like that. I think Stunt may still be my favorite of the Bare Naked Ladies albums. But during that time, I was neither hot nor cold. I was very lukewarm about the group. But I was enthusiastic about meeting him. Because to me, compared to... Julian Lennon coming to the corporate office for lunchtime, playing a few songs and signing autographs, and the record label handing out promotional CDs. This one seemed to be more my cup of tea. It was more alternative rock, uh, with the indie background, the indie credentials, and catching a band right at that crossroads. It was going to be interesting. Their appearance was more first thing in the morning, breakfast bagels, again, playing a set of songs, three or four, I imagine. And I say I imagine because I couldn't be there. See, the day that Bare Naked Ladies showed up in um, Camelot Music's court headquarters to perform was the, the morning that Frank Sinatra died. My responsibilities at that time were the planning and allocation of, among other things, easy listening, jazz, new age music, country. And so the, the death of Frank Sinatra created an immediate, serious, significant, time-based, time-pressured to-do list for me. Namely... Uh, allocating to the most appropriate stores every single piece of Frank Sinatra's catalog that we had in, in our DC and trying to identify the, the key pieces we were missing so we could order emergency product while it was still available of the rest of his catalog, along with collaborating with the video buyer and the person responsible for the, for the allocation of video titles to find the exact right Frank Sinatra video that might make sense. 
to help a nation mourn the death of a music icon by what we tend to do at this time, go and buy music. Reminds me of the line from the Smith songs, Paint a Vulgar Picture. Reissue, repackage, repackage, reevaluate the songs. Double pack with a photograph, extra track, and a tacky badge. That notion of when a musician dies, the very first thing that happens are perhaps multiple greatest hits albums being released. Again, to try to tap into the immediate demand of people who might have taken that artist for granted. Well, I hadn't taken that artist for granted. I, I was aware of what might happen the day something like the death of Frank Sinatra occurred. And it just so so happened that that occurred on the same day that the Bare Naked Ladies were doing a meet and greet in our corporate office. And I missed the meet and greet. That actually might have topped this list in the minds of some people. And I would understand that. The stories I really wanted to tell today were twofold. One, a famous character actor. And one, an unmistakable music superstar. And I'll get to those two stories in just a moment. Before I do, though, I, from time to time, need to call out the fact that the promotional clips that I play on Inappropriate Conversations are not selected by any accident. Uh, first, there's, there's no exchange of funds, there's no quid pro quo. I am using promotional clips to divide up the topics on the show and to make what's essentially a one-voice Inappropriate Conversations podcast um, you know, a little bit easier on the ears by splitting and shifting topics at the moment of dropping in a promo. But there's a couple of other things that are true about the promotional clips that I share. One is that these are podcasts I listen to. So if I'm sharing a moment from a podcast on the show, believe me, it's a podcast that I'm paying attention to myself. And the other thing that I would mention about them is that I try my best to make them relevant to the topic. So here I am in the midst of in inappropriate conversations filled with name-dropping and storytelling and, and maybe things that are somewhat at the mercy of my memory, right? I'm going to get closer and closer to things where I'm not 100% sure I'm remembering them as truthfully as I can. And it leads me to this particular clip for a podcast that's much shorter than inappropriate conversations and totally committed to storytelling, what some would call lies. I love telling stories. What Some Would Call Lies is a weekly storytelling podcast where each week I tell a story from my life as accurately as I see fit. I've always had trouble distinguishing between what happened and what merely might have happened, but I remain unconvinced that this distinction, for my purposes, matters. Go to whatsomewouldcalllies.com or you can subscribe in iTunes or with Stitcher Smart Radio. I like to eat pizza. Again, I can't think of a more appropriate podcast reference to drop at this point in time. And I don't want to make it sound like I only have two more stories to share because there's only two encounters that are relevant. There are others that I'm just not going to share. When you work in the uh, entertainment side of the newspaper business, even as a college reporter representing an entertainment page, there are opportunities to meet people. So I'm not going to tell any of the stories of the world premiere for Star Trek for The Voyage Home, and getting an opportunity to participate in group interviews with some of the actors from Star Trek, including the, the actors that I might call guest performers or guest stars of that movie, people who weren't normally part of the cast but were part of that particular film cast. Um, there's a couple reasons not to do it. First is that I don't want to get any of those stories wrong, and I'm worried a little bit about my memory on this particular night to get them exactly right. The other thing was that those encounters weren't necessarily personal. 
for one thing, it was business. I was doing interviews to write a story to, to help, in the minds of the movie studio, to help them promote a movie. But the other thing, the encounters were sort of group encounters, where I was there with maybe 20 other reporters, mainly student reporters, interviewing the stars, directors, and so forth, the technicians of a, of a movie. I'm going to leave those stories out. The actor that I've encountered, and one of my favorite memories, although my memory of it is a little bit sketchy, was John Goodman. My wife and I were sitting in a beer garden in the New Orleans Jazz Festival, kind of right in the middle. We'd spent the day walking around, getting the lay of the land, and and we were kind of there with, with some friends of my wife, actually friends of the family, and we were at a place where we could kind of sit and relax. We could see off in the distance um, one performer on stage, and then we could hear two performers from one from a tent and another from a stage behind us. So we were, we'd found that spot where you could actually understand what was happening on three different sort of stages at the same time, which made it a place that I was kind of comfortable lingering. We were facing toward where B.B. King was performing, and that performance was way off in the distance. So we were facing that stage, but it was a good distance away. And a Cajun band, again, here's where what someone call eyes makes sense. What if I don't remember it perfectly? I think it was Wayne Dupes and Zyda Cajun, but I could be wrong about who it was behind us. The most important thing to me at that moment in time was that John Goodman, who was also there as just himself, enjoying you know, jazz and blues and uh, Zydeco music, hanging out at the New Orleans Jazz Festival this particular year, strolled up to the corner where we were at, sort of on the midway section while we were inside the beer garden, and stopped to chat. Again, I wish I could remember more about the conversation. But I can tell you what the conversation wasn't about. It wasn't about how much I enjoyed the movie Barton Fink. It wasn't about what you know, asking fanboy questions about what it's like to work with the Coen brothers. It wasn't about can I get your autograph. It was probably truly about the music. I'm here hoping to see this and this, and this is the music that I enjoy. What about you? It was that kind of conversation. Quick. I think it would be an exaggeration to say that we shared a beer with John Goodman. But we did encounter John Goodman, and to me it's a good example of the kind of counter, encounters I'm talking about, where if he had any recollection, and why should he, mine's spotty at best, it would probably be a recollection where maybe I'm hoping one of the good ones, where instead of encountering somebody who was looking for memorabilia or taking me out of the moment of enjoying this, this, uh, this music event by needing my picture and trying to make it all about me or trying to make... It all about me and you, stranger, fan I don't know. Um, no, it was, we're both here to enjoy jazz and blues music and folk and Cajun music. And if we encounter each other and uh, I happen to recognize you, of course there's no reason why John Goodman would ever recognize me, the conversation should be about that, should be about the music, should be about why we were there. This one has the distinction of actually being a real live encounter with conversation, with sort of an acknowledgement of my wife and I recognizing him, but him not necessarily recognizing us. And so that one to me is a good example. To me, the, the one that I find the most interesting, though, is our different drummer, Garth Brooks. Before I get to the drummer segment, though, let me tell the story. I remember sitting in a mass communications law class at Oklahoma State University in the mid-1980s, and it was one of those large classes where everybody had to take the course. Whether you were in public relations or journalism or radio, TV, film or marketing, if you were part of the College of Journalism and Broadcasting, you, you had to take this Introduction to Mass Communications Law class. 
depending on your major, you might have to take more than one of these courses. But this being that sort of intro class had a ton of students. It was in that particular building's biggest classroom, and it was packed, packed completely full, 300 students at least. And the professor kind of said in this very first day that he was only going to try to attempt to deal with the roll call problem one time because it would probably take half of that first day's course just to get through the process. And he was not so much interested in doing it because he had any expectation of remembering anyone's name. It was more about making sure that he had a feel for what the mix in the room was. If he was going to be teaching a course that semester where more than 50% of the people were part of the advertising department, he might adjust the syllabus accordingly. But it also gave him a chance to make sure that no one was in the classroom by mistake, that everyone knew what the course was and kind of had a sense of who else was there. And he wanted, I think, probably for journalism students to find fellow journalism students to use if there was going to be an, a, collaborative, a collaborative assignment or group study to prepare for tests or something along those lines. I was sitting next to a friend of mine, and she's an interesting friend. I'll call her Connie. It's her name. The story isn't embarrassing to her, so there's no reason to change her name. And, you know, we had known each other since high school, but we'd known each other as people going to different high schools. In fact, we might have ended up in rival high schools had my family not moved right at the beginning of my junior high school experience. But because we weren't rivals, every time we encountered each other, whether it was at a, at a district-wide journalism event or a sporting event or whatever, uh, we were always on excellent terms. And to be honest with you, uh, my, my uh, encounters with Connie go back so far that I can't remember the first meeting. And that's really unusual for me. So an old friend where the friendship goes back so far that the origin story isn't even important anymore. That kind of friend. And so we were sitting together because, again, 300 people, if you recognize somebody, you're going to migrate in that direction. And she had a couple of friends that I hadn't met before who were part of the advertising department. And, you know, we got to know each other and we actually did spend some time uh, studying for tests together. It was, it was a good, clean group. But I thought, this is really going to be an awkward use of classroom time. I'm sitting here where the teacher is going to be going row by row, aisle by aisle, t- getting the names right and the, the major uh, understood for every single student who'd taken the class. And at one point, early on in the process, I was already bored, but it was still early on in the process, they came across somebody about midway through the fourth or fifth row on the right side of the classroom. Uh, I was sitting to the professor's left, not to the right. And the person's name was Garth. And I tapped my friend on the shoulder and I said, Garth, isn't that a Star Trek name? Now, the answer to the question, isn't that a Star Trek name, is yes. (laughs) Garth to my mind, and the connection that I made upon hearing the name, was the principal character, the antagonist, for a January 1969 episode of Star Trek, the original series, called Whom Gods Destroy. Uh, Garth, residing at a uh, kind of an insane asylum, a high-security asylum for the criminally insane, uh, takes over the facility while uh, Kirk and a landing party are visiting. And I made the reference, isn't that a Star Trek name? And uh, before she could interject and offer any opinion of her own, I also said, he probably should take his hat off in class, right? I mean, here we are, we're, we're in a classroom environment. What are you doing wearing your cowboy hat? And she told me to cut the guy some slack. She'd met him, and he was really cool. He's on the track team, um, throws javelin or shot put or something like that. 
and he sings uh, in in bars, not just country. Don't don't let the hat fool you. He'll sing uh, rock and roll some nights and country other nights. You'd really like him being so into music. You know what? The fact is, Connie was right. I would really like him being so into music. So imagine my surprise on April 12th, uh, 1989, working in a record store, probably only my third week in the record store, cracking open a box of brand new releases to price and label to put out for sale on that particular Tuesday morning, when I came face to face with somebody who looked just a little bit too much like the guy I made fun of that day in mass communications law. That guy, Garth, is our different drummer. So you know the entire topic here is by and large self-deprecating. I'm being critical. I've had brushes with famous people because I happen to be in an elevator with them, or <clears throat> signing autographs after a concert, or in this case, making fun of them for wearing their cowboy hat inside the building for a mass communications law class. The only other time I've ever been in the same place with Garth Brooks was in what I think is probably still his current hometown of Owasso, Oklahoma. I was visiting the Tulsa area at the time and was in an Owasso area place that little restaurant right off the right off the highway that was kind of a combination of donut shop, submarine sandwich shop, and coffee shop. For all I know, it might have even had a gas pump outside. And I was a little bit surprised that this person, again, somebody that I have an encounter with, graduated from the same university, actually went to the same college within the university. But I prefer to let people be themselves. If I don't have something meaningful to say, I'm not going to say it. And believe me, my attitude is, may I have your autograph, is not something meaningful to say. Plus, I'm not 100% sure that I could be as enthusiastic, as genuinely enthusiastic with Garth Brooks as I was with John Goodman. And that's strange, because I think that if you look at things from the perspective of high perception and low perception, my perception of Garth is much higher than John Goodman on the high side, but the low perception is higher too. So in this different drummer segment, I guess I'm going to start off by trying to explain why Garth has not been a different drummer before now, if I feel as strongly as I do. Well, maybe the first thing to say is, how strongly do I feel about the music of Garth Brooks? And maybe I should let the, the editors of All Media Guide, the All Music Guide, speak for me. Because I think the first couple of sentences of the biography at www.allmusic.com pretty much tells the story. From the article by Stephen Thomas Erlewine, quoting, Garth Brooks is a pivotal figure in the history of country music, no matter how much some country purists would like to deny it. With his commercially savvy fusion of post-Merle Haggard country, honky-tonk, post-folk rock sensitive singer-songwriter sensibilities, and 70s arena rock dramatics, Garth brought country music to a new audience in the 90s, namely a mass audience. Before Brooks, it was inconceivable for a country artist to go multi-platinum. He shattered that barrier in 1991, when his second album, No Fences, began its chart domination, and its follow-up, Rope in the Wind, became the first country album to debut at the top of the charts. No Fences would eventually sell a record-shattering 13 million copies, and counting. After Garth... Country music had successfully carved a permanent place for itself on the pop charts. In the process, it lost a lot of the traditionalism that had always been its hallmark, but that is precisely why Brooks 
is important. No Fences is the pivotal album, from my perspective, but not the best-selling album in Garth's catalog. He sold more than 20 million copies of a double live album that came out, and I'll talk a bit about the reasons for that in just a moment. First, what I typically do when I'm naming a music artist as a different drummer is going straight to my MP3 player. 62 songs by Garth Brooks, including almost every song, with a couple, maybe three exceptions, from the No Fences album on there. From my perspective, No Fences is the most important album in the history of country music, certainly in the history of country music during my lifetime. But Garth probably takes too much heat as an anti-traditionalist. I don't see that as true for one moment. In addition to him introducing pop, rock, country you know, mixed together, even from the very first album, uh, there are moments in Much Too Young to Feel This Damn Old, which would have rubbed the traditional establishment the wrong way. And of course, it was only a couple albums later that he would begin to cover popular rock songs. Shameless, the Billy Joel uh, ballad, would appear on his third album. Two, three albums after that, he would remake a song by Aerosmith in still a true-to-country style. He's done guest appearances on uh, like a Kiss tribute album, performing a song by Kiss in more of a rock than a country vein. So there's no doubt that he does have the uh, credentials of somebody who brought you know, arena rock into country and certainly delivered concerts from the perspective of not a uh, man and his guitar standing behind a microphone, but a true arena rock approach to concert performance, including country music concert performance. But I think it would be a big mistake to deny the traditional approach that he used as well. I Know One, from that very first album that I encountered in 1989, is a cover of a song made famous by Jim Reeves. And what this means is that my... Uh, the fact that I have songs by Jim Reeves on my MP3 player is probably 100% due to Garth Brooks. That's an interesting statement to make, right? Because it's not like I didn't know who Jim Reeves was. Anybody who ever saw... You know, the time life country hits of the 50s and 60s or 30s and 40s, 50s and 60s. Those sort of uh, nostalgic retrospective box set type shows would have seen Jim Reeves and had an understanding of who he was. I'm sure I'd, I'd heard at least half a verse of He'll Have to Go a dozen times in my lifetime. And my introduction to Jim Reeves was through those shows, through those box sets. In the next Inappropriate Conversations show, which... I intend to record on Record Store Day this upcoming weekend is going to be about the box set and the, some of the uh, perhaps lesser-known lineage of the box set as a form of music packaging, for want of a better word. But for me, I went back and I've got 19, 19 songs, maybe 20, on my MP3 player right now from Jim Reeves. And I can't think of a better reason why I own as much of Jim's music as I do if it weren't for Garth. His interpretation, the Brooks interpretation of I Know One, is actually not my favorite, but it was the entry point for me. Normally, if I'm talking about a different drummer from the, uh, the music genre, especially a singer, uh, I'd want to look at that per person from the perspective of songwriting. And here, it's a bit of a mixed bag. For one thing, Garth Brooks is more often than not going to be a co-songwriter rather than the sole songwriter. So despite his, his interest in singer-songwriter as a genre, his love for performers like uh, Billy Joel and James Taylor, for example, he wasn't necessarily walking directly in those particular footsteps. And I could offer some criticism. 
uh, If Tomorrow Never Comes, one of his first big singles from that first album, reminds me a lot thematically and even a little bit musically of the Bruce Springsteen track Wreck on the Highway. And between the two, I prefer Wreck on the Highway. But his collaborations have been very, very solid. Uh, On the comedy side, It's Midnight Cinderella is one of my favorite tracks from the Fresh Horses album. Not Counting You, the very first track on the very first Garth album, at least the first one I can remember hearing. And Papa Love Mama from Rope in the Wind, a, a very dark piece of black comedy from my perspective. But on the serious side, he's got a songwriting co credit on tracks like The River, Unanswered Prayer, The Thunder Rolls, What She's Doing Now, and We Shall Be Free. So, why has it taken me this long? If I'm enthusiastic about Garth Brooks tracks like We Shall Be Tr- Free, to name him as a different drummer, what happened? in that first dozen or so that I was pinning together that kept him out of the mix. And the main thing that kept him out of the mix was the songwriter, Stephanie Davis. I mentioned that Garth Brooks is a co-songwriter. Stephanie Davis was my different drummer for Inappropriate Conversations number 5, called The Least of These and Why Danzig's Godless Absolutely Rocks. She was named as a different drummer primarily for her songwriting skills, although I did share some of her music and some of the background of that music on the show. She's responsible for my all-time favorite Garth Brooks song, a track called Wolves from No Fences, which, as I've already mentioned, is my all-time favorite Garth Brooks album. You know, talk about Brooks introducing new styles. In addition to bringing me into a traditional form of country on that first solo album with I Know One, he also introduced a doo-wop track on No Fences, which I perhaps think he doesn't get enough credit for. His version of Mr. Blue is actually a song I think originally by the Fleetwoods, if I'm not mistaken. So wasn't afraid to mix genre and combine things together. But if you look at Stephanie Davis's contribution to songwriting, you get tracks like The Gift, which I mentioned on a recent Christmas episode is one of my all-time favorite Christmas songs, Wolves, my favorite Garth Brooks track, and We Shall Be Free. I'm going to come back to We Shall Be Free a little bit later in this Different Drummer segment. I want to end on something positive, in other words. Because I think right now, in addition to saying, given the choice between Stephanie Davis and Garth Brooks, which one did I cite as a different drummer first? Stephanie Davis. And was that was that a mistake? I think the answer is no. It absolutely wasn't a mistake. Again, I feel like she's contributed a lot here to some of the songwriting that... Brooks has taken advantage of, and that's not a criticism. To me, being a a singer-songwriter in the country genre is one thing, but everyone else in country music is essentially an interpreter in song. So when I talk about Frank Sinatra being someone who's not credited with a lot of songwriting credits, but nevertheless, there are songs that you look at and you say, well, that's obviously a Sinatra song. It's because of that song interpretation quality that a solo artist would bring, and And Garth Brooks deserves credit there as well as being somebody who owns some songs he didn't actually write. Uh, The Dance being a good example from his very first first album. Though, if I was going to offer another piece of criticism, it would primarily be this. The other reason I went with Stephanie Davis early on in that particular inappropriate conversation show is that I wanted to reference the lyrics, particularly to the song Wolves, I thought it might be valuable to actually share a clip from the song Wolves. But Garth Brooks has put a lot of energy into making sure that nobody was, I guess for want of a better word, 
cheating him out of even a, even a penny of royalties. There's a story. Could be apocryphal, maybe not. It's in Wikipedia, so take that for what you will. But there's a story in Wikipedia where uh, Garth had apparently given half a million dollars to a uh, Oklahoma City area hospital to name a cancer center that they were planning to build after his mom, who had recently died of cancer. And when the hospital decided that they weren't going to, to build that facility as planned and was going to use the capital money to build something slightly different and not name it after Garth's mom, uh, he sued to recover the money. And there's nothing wrong with that if the story is true. Uh, there is a certain economic principle here that should not be violated. If if somebody gives a, don a large donation to an endowment for something to happen and that something doesn't happen, then frankly you shouldn't have to go to court to get some sort of compensation or restoration of funds. But the kind of person who doesn't want to get cheated, right? So it's very rare to find a Garth Brooks track available on YouTube, even unless it's a cover version. And even then, I wouldn't be surprised if people who do cover versions of songs where he has ownership rights to the song as a songwriter wouldn't be surprised if the lawyers get involved there as well. Here's what the Wikipedia article says to the 1993-94 section on In Pieces. It's in the album section of the Wikipedia biography for Garth Brooks. In 1993, Garth Brooks, who had criticized music stores which sold used CDs since it led to a loss in royalty payments, persuaded Capitol Records not to ship his August 1993 album In Pieces to stores which engaged in this practice. This led to several antitrust lawsuits against the record label and ended up with Capitol shipping the CDs to the stores after all. Despite the delays in shipping the album to certain stores, In Pieces was another instant number one success, selling a total of about 10 million copies worldwide. I think the thing to note about Brooks is that he's had numerous albums that have reached not just platinum status, but diamond platinum status. Uh, ten times platinum for the self-titled debut album. Seventeen times platinum for No Fences. Fourteen times platinum for Roping the Wind. And so on and so on. So, shipping the In Pieces album, um, the, uh, the legal shenanigans didn't hurt any. But here's my observation on it. If somebody buys an album and doesn't like it, and puts it in a garage sale, and sells it for, you know, 75 cents. Is that an affront to the musician? I mean, the, the musician's biggest problem is the person who bought the album didn't like it and wanted to get rid of it. Should the musician be able to come and collect 3 cents or 4 cents or whatever the multiple might be against the 75 cents that was put as a sticker price on the garage sale item? And although I never worked for a record store that sold used albums along with new albums, and therefore... My particular company was never in any hot water with Capitol Records or Garth Brooks over the practice of selling used albums. Here's the irony. Garth Brooks would later make another, what I consider to be a controversial business decision, and that was to only sell his music from a box set forward, from a certain point in his career forward. All of his subsequent releases would only be made available in Walmart. I'm not necessarily the world's biggest fan of Walmart. I often refer to Walmart... Um, with the uh, the title of a Max Apple short story called The Oranging of America. I believe that when Walmart moves to town, you tend to see individual entrepreneurs squeezed out and Main Street get shuttered and barred. And so I'm not really necessarily the first one to celebrate Walmart, and I don't necessarily think Walmart needs a heck of a lot of help from influential, powerful musicians like Garth Brooks to prop them up. 
So from that point forward, for a number of years, I just said, you know what, most of what Brooks is putting out at this stage, because it was in the hiatus part of his career, where he rightfully, perhaps, decided that he needed to spend more time with his children, with his family, and therefore he was going to draw a line in the sand whereby he would stop recording and touring and wouldn't pick up again until his youngest child was graduated from high school. And he's pretty much made good on that promise, with very few exceptions, uh, waiting to the point where his youngest daughter had enrolled in college, and he has now, just here very recently, resumed that music career. But I wasn't going to buy any of that music from Walmart. So the most recent Garth Brooks recording that I've purchased, I haven't even gotten around to the latest one yet, because I tend to buy my digital music from either iTunes or eMusic, and it's not available in either place, or at least originally it wasn't available on iTunes. No, there's a 2005 album called The Lost Sessions. This was originally only available in Walmart, therefore I didn't buy it. Within the last 12 months or so, I did buy it. I bought it at a used record store. I bought it at a used record store from somebody that I'm presuming either didn't want it anymore because it was kind of a collection of recorded and previously unreleased tracks, side tracks, uh, songs that didn't make it onto an album, compilation tracks, I guess would be the way I would word it. And the irony to me is, for somebody who, uh, as a music industry insider, despised the used record store concept and the used record store industry itself, uh, I've noted many times, including the very first inappropriate conversation I recorded around the topic of record store day, that the used record store, to me, is a critical way of introducing new music to a new, often younger audience. And even as uh, somebody who's bought with uh, probably at full retail on almost every occasion I can think of, every Garth Brooks album as they came out. Enthusiastic, because this is the guy in the cowboy hat that I made fun of his name in MassCom Law class in the middle of the 1980s. The one exception here is everything that he's released during this Walmart period. So I'm citing Garth as a different drummer for a couple of reasons. First, it may be the the most famous of all of my famous celebrity encounters. Self-deprecating story when I tell it. People say, oh, boy, what a huge mistake if, if you just become his friend all those years ago. But that's the point, right? I'm no more interested in becoming somebody's friend just because of potential of their future fame and fortune and how I might capitalize on that than I am interested in recognizing that future fame and fortune from a complete stranger and taking away nothing from it more tangible than a, a name on a piece of paper or a photograph taken on a phone or with a Polaroid. There's got to be more to it than that right? Well, the more to it for me is twofold. First, it's the music. It's always ultimately going to be about the music. So if I leave out the more recent recordings and just go back to those original albums, starting with the self-titled one, let me just quickly drop a few names of, just drop a few names of songs on an album by album basis. Because I think if anybody has never given Garth Brooks a shot, he's well worth the time. For me, from that first self-titled album, I Know One is really the crucial track. It's a remake of the Jim Reeves number, and if you've never heard Jim Reeves, Jim Reeves is well worth the time as well. I mentioned in reference to No Fences, the next album that he released, that Wolves is my favorite all-time Garth Brooks number. But I also think Mr. Blue's worth the time as a doo-wop interpretation. Unanswered Prayers is solid. Wild Horses Keep Dragging Me Away is a lovely pun built around the idea of somebody who's going to lose his girlfriend because he won't stop doing rodeo events. Wild Horses, that one. And Friends in Low Places, 
probably the most important Garth Brooks song ever written. The one for whom he would belong in both the Country Music and Rock Music Hall of Fame for no other reason than that particular track all by itself. As I quickly jump back to my list of songs co-written by Garth Brooks, I'm not seeing Friends in Low Places on the list, but then again, it's a Wikipedia list, so it's hard to say. At the very least, it's another example of it being Garth Brooks' song. And the reason his double live album has so many more sales than any other album that he's released is because that has what we might call the unedited unedited version of Friends in Low Places. Friends in Low Places' uh, second verse includes... uh, I'll be as high as that ivory tower you're living in. But he has a uh, he has a different verse on the live album that rhymes with glass. <laughs> so just put it that way. Uh, if you've never heard the live album, it's well worth the time I own it. But I only have one track from that on my MP3 player. I think because I like the original release so much, the original release series. I mentioned two of a kind working on a full house. On previous inappropriate conversations, talking about censorship, and specifically referring to the pun that he drops into the middle of that particular song, uh, the one about she's my honeycomb and I'm her sugar cane, we really fit together, if you know what I'm talking about. We're two of a kind, working on a full house. From Rope in the Wind, I love the river, what she's doing now, and the dark comedy of Papa Loved Mama, Uh, no doubt about that one. The next album after it is in pieces, and I'm frankly surprised I've got three tracks on that. I'm not the biggest fan. I've got the American Honky Tonk Bar Association, for one, and also Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up. This is a Garth Brooks songwriting credit, but anyone who's heard the song surely has made the connection between this song, at least for the the feel of it, and the uh, We Didn't Start the Fire track by Billy Joel. He's a Billy Joel fan. In fact, that's the other thing that's interesting about Garth that I like so much about his music, is when he's mixing in the arena rock side of who he is, more as a live performer, perhaps, than what is captured on these studio albums, he's talking about the rock and roll music that I would have kind of fallen in love with at the beginning of me encountering rock music. I think, in many ways, I've grown out of my interest in bands like Styx and, uh, to some degree, Kansas, certainly REO Speedwagon. And he's still got a lot of the Rush, Styx, Kansas, REO Speedwagon in his ovary. I've seen music documentaries here lately where Garth Brooks has spoken about his love for bands like Rush and Kansas. And I would have to admit that if I go back to high school and early college, Greg, that's pretty much where my mind would be as well. If you go back in time that far and everything that's happened in rock and pop since then hasn't occurred, that's still exactly where I would be. So we sort of have that in common. And that's, to me, one of the sort of the drawbacks of... The, one of the drawbacks of being a huge Billy Joel fan, and it's showing up loud and clear in your writing. From The Chase, which may be the last one I'll mention, because I've already mentioned my love for It's Midnight Cinderella. For The Chase, every now and then really works for me. I get a laugh out of That Summer, which is the song most people would probably think of from this album. Sort of a coming-of-age story. Young farmhand over a summer older widow, that sort of storyline. And his interpretation of the old uh, country folk ballad, Night Rider's Lament, is really, really good. I've heard it done by a couple of other performers, and I think I like Brooks's version the very best. But the song for me from The Chase is the one that was co-written by Garth Brooks, Stephanie Davis, and perhaps others, called We Shall Be Free. 
And it's interesting when you read some of the history behind it, places like the All Media Guide and, and Wikipedia, it talks about that particular single not being necessarily that successful. One of the ones where its fame grew in live performance more than in pure uh, radio play and album sales. And I'm wondering if maybe the theme of the song, being somewhat more politically liberal, had something to do with it. Uh, Brooks had an opportunity to speak on more than one occasion about that particular song. And here's what he shared. I'm going to share the article from gaytoday.badpuppy.com. And it's basically got a quote from Garth Brooks. Setting the record straight is the header for this particular line. In 1993, country legend Garth Brooks won a GLAAD Media Award. It's a gay and lesbian alliance group for his song, We Shall Be Free. Because the song, We Shall Be Free, includes the line, when we're free to love anyone we choose, when the world's big enough for all different views. Garth said this in an interview about the song in George Magazine. Garth says this, What's odd is that nobody assumed it could mean interracial marriages or interfaith marriages. They immediately went straight to the homosexual thing. I can't see love being a bad thing. Lust is different. But if you're in love, you've got to follow your heart and trust that God will explain to us why we sometimes fall in love with people of the same sex. Judgment Day is coming, and I ain't going to be the one standing over people up there. I think what this quote means is something that I shared probably most recently in Walk the Earth 25, just a week or so ago, and that's that I think you got to let God be God. And from my perspective, I don't want to be the one standing in the way of people, having a relationship with the Lord, despite of where they stand in the spectrum of sexual orientation. I find myself on that cross that some people envision as a bridge um, that helps people cross from this earthly existence, avoiding hell, and over to a new heaven and new earth. I see myself standing on the end of that cross that is probably farther away from a lot of the rest of modern Christianity, away from the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church through most of my lifetime, away from what we tend to call politically evangelical Christianity, nowhere near the Pharisees, in other words, because I'm over on the other side telling people that, that, it is, that there is such a thing as being both gay and Christian, and that people who have a relationship with the Lord, and who also find themselves in same-sex relationships, don't have to explain that to anybody who's walking the earth right now. And they may be surprised on this day of judgment that Garth references in his quote, to find that that's not the area where God has questions either. We don't get to say. So on that front, Garth Brooks and I are on the same page. And when I think about tracks again like Wolves and uh, We Shall Be Free, there's a lot there that you would think would rub the rest of traditional country music establishments so wrong that there'd be almost no way this guy could have sold more albums than anybody else besides Elvis Presley and the Beatles. And yet, that's where he's at, across the spectrum, having albums that you know landed number one, not just on the country chart the week of their release, but on the pop chart as well. I was standing in a store when the Rope in the Wind album came out. Kind of surprised that Rope in the Wind came out more or less at the same time a Def Leppard album did. And we were selling more Garth Brooks albums to people who were Def Leppard fans than I would have guessed. Let's put it this way. We had more people buying just Garth than Def Leppard, and we had more people buying both than just Def, Le Def Leppard. I think it's because 
partly is because Garth had found a way to have that particular crossover appeal. That he had the he had the voice of somebody who understood both rock and country. The other reason, though, I think the Rope in the Wind album did so well on the day of its release was because of the strength of its predecessor. The album came out right after No Fences, meaning that people came to buy that album assuming it would be as good as the one before it. And as I've said before, I think No Fences is definitely the best country music album I've ever heard, and it might be among the best albums recorded during my lifetime. As you'll note from the context of the different drummer here, I got mixed feelings about Garth Brooks. Feel a bit bad about taking a pot shot for his hat and his name in college all those years ago, but I don't feel bad about not bothering him at a donut shop just a few years back. When you've got nothing to say to somebody, sometimes the right thing to say is nothing at all. And that is probably the overarching theme of my celebrity encounters. The most important thing to me is relationships. When I traveled to the United Kingdom last year, I was going to meet people. People that I'd interacted with online. People who may listen to my show, but I definitely listened to theirs. People. And when that line between fan and celebrity doesn't get all the way to a person-to-person encounter, from my perspective, you don't have much to go on there. Because it's not who you know. It's not name-dropping. Or at least, it's not name-dropping for me. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. There's a Facebook page for inappropriate conversations. There's also one for Walk the Earth. On Twitter, I can be found at IC underscore Greg. And both the Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcast can be found together on the same feed. The website is www.inappropriateconversations.org iTunes tends to have the last 20 or so episodes, but every episode is available at the website for inappropriateconversations.org. The show can also be found on Stitcher. If you like to listen to podcasts on the go, Stitcher is a good way to do that. And I am still in the process, the slow process, of putting old Inappropriate Conversations clips, just hints from the oldest shows on what the topic was for that particular episode, on SoundCloud. I can be found on SoundCloud as as I see underscore Greg. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod.